Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. I'm Colleen Tinker. And I'm Nikki Stevenson. Today, Nikki, we're going to finish our discussion of Revelation 13. <laughs> and we've had a discussion about this right up to the moment we said, Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. <laughs> this is where the beast that arises out of the earth with two horns like a lamb is going to appear. It's so interesting to me that when we finished up Revelation 12 with the the dragon and the woman and all of that, I had completely forgotten and missed the fact that the end of chapter 12 was an Adventist proof text. (laughs) So as I'm studying along through Revelation 13, seeing things through my new lenses without the Ellen White overlay, it took me a minute to remember that this passage we're looking at today is another giant Ellen White moment. Ellen White said that this lamb-like beast that comes out of the earth is the United States of America. (laughs) But we're going to see that America is not in this prophecy. We can't completely identify what is, but (laughs) we know it's not America. (laughs) But before we do that, I want to remind everyone that you can write to us at formeradventist at gmail.com. And you can find our website at proclamationmagazine.com. And there you can sign up for our weekly Proclamation Magazine email, and you can find links to our online articles, our YouTube channel, and links to this podcast. You can also donate there to Life Assurance Ministries by using the Donate tab. Your donations will help to support not only this podcast, but also our ongoing outreach to Adventists, former Adventists, and concerned Christians, including our growing work in Portuguese led by Debbie Buffoni, which is reaching out especially to the Adventist population in Brazil. And it is so exciting to see how her materials and her online resources in Portuguese are growing. Yeah, she's doing amazing work there. So you can support us by going to proclamationmagazine.com and finding that donate tab. But now we're looking at Revelation 13. And so, Nikki, do you have any reactions to what we read today that trigger anything from Adventism? Well, this is actually really good news. (laughs) (laughs) When you sent me your notes for this podcast, you commented about all of the Ellen White proof texts here. And I went, "Uh uh-oh, I missed those. (laughs) Congratulations! I didn't didn't see them. I just didn't see them. And and that can maybe be an encouragement to people who only see Adventist proof text when they read the Bible. I sure did when I first came out. If I saw the word Sabbath, Mm -hmm. or Jesus went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, or Paul going and and teaching in the synagogue, see, we're supposed to keep the Sabbath. It freaked me out. And to be able to read the Bible now after taking it back yes. <laughs> for almost 14 years now. And to miss those is just delightful. It's, it's wonderful. reassuring, isn't it? <laughs> yes. We had an email just this week from a man whose wife has been Adventist, but has been going to a Christian church with him. And he said that she has been unable to go to church with him on Sundays since the pastor started a series of studies in church on the book of Revelation. Mm-hmm. And he said, She said, it causes her fear. And he said, I can't figure out what's fearful in Revelation. (laughs) Well, that alone is like a wonderful breath of fresh air. But he wondered why she would be so afraid that she couldn't go to church. Well, Nikki, we know why. What have they done with Revelation in general to all of us? They've abused us with it. Yeah, They've traumatized many generations with Daniel and Revelation. 
And I think one of the most clear indications of what they have done was in that collection of photographs taken in 2009 mm-hmm. at Camp Ausable in Michigan, where it showed pictures of a youth camp where on the Sabbath afternoon activity time, they divided the camp up into victims and victimizers. That's my words. Mm-hmm. And it showed kids role-playing, fleeing for their life to defend the Sabbath, while others in fatigues with fake guns that looked real would point those guns at the children's heads and fake shoot them if those children did not recant their loyalty to the Sabbath. That was a role play on Sabbath afternoon. And I think part of what was so significant about that is that it was captured on camera, not because it was a one-off. Right. When those pictures started circulating among former Adventists in their groups online, story after story began to emerge in the comment section of people who have endured similar role play activities, whether in their churches, during their camp meetings, at camps, in Sabbath school. This is something that goes on. Yeah, it is. In fact, Richard was just telling us that when he was in academy, they were sitting in church and suddenly the doors burst open and people that looked like soldiers or policemen came marching in and began to harass the people in the church about whether or not they were going to give up the Sabbath. And it was a role play, but at first they didn't know it. So this is somewhat common. Adventists are taught to fear the end times fearing that they will be made to die for their loyalty to the Sabbath. And that's why Revelation literally evokes visceral reactions and physical illness in people when they think they have to study it. And I love it, Nikki, that we're taking it back and it's no longer fearful. In fact, I missed the proof text in chapter 12. (laughs) So, as we walk into 13, I'm just going to recap a little bit about what we saw in chapter 12, because I think it bears mentioning what the proof text was. In chapter 12, we saw the red dragon who was waiting for the child that was going to be born to the woman, and we determined that the child is Jesus and the woman is Israel. And in Adventism, we understood this whole scenario where the dragon goes off to Um, persecute those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus right there at the end of chapter 12. In Adventism, we understood this to mean us, Mm -hmm. us Adventists, the Sabbath keepers, observing the fourth commandment, and that we would be harassed and persecuted by the Sunday keepers, so to speak, the Christians who would be given legal permission to hunt and kill us. That is often pretty shocking for Christians to hear. Oh, yeah. Yeah, But that is part of Ellen White's teaching, mm-hmm. and it's part of Adventist belief. But we had the spirit of prophecy, Ellen White, and so we believed we had the correct interpretation of this. So in chapter 12, where it ends by saying, he went off to persecute those who were keeping the commandments of God and had the testimony or the witness of Jesus, we understood that to be the spirit of prophecy based on connecting it to a later verse in Revelation 19 that says, and the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And in our Adventist brains, that meant Ellen White. Her writings are called the spirit of prophecy. Right. So we understood the end of chapter 12 to be a proof text for us Adventists that we were going to be persecuted because we had the testimony of Jesus, read that, the spirit of prophecy, read that, Ellen White, and then we were keeping the commandments. So Sabbath keepers are going to be killed. 
But in context, John is not referring to the law here. He's not referring to the Ten Commandments when he says those who keep the commandments of God. He uses entelos. Yeah, which means what? Well, the teachings, the instructions, the, the commands. It doesn't mean law. So whenever John, in his five books, refers to the law, including the Ten Commandments and the entire law of Moses, he uses the word nomos or a form of that word. When he talks about the teachings of Jesus and the commands for believers who have trusted Jesus, he doesn't use the word law. He uses the word entolas. Yes. This is, in context, not even close to meaning what we thought it meant. Just have to say that before we go on, because we didn't even pick that up our first pass through. Let me just point out again, I know we all know this, but... When we started our walk through Revelation, we talked about theological triage, and we talked about the fact that our interpretation of Revelation, of eschatology, of end-time events is not salvific. But what Adventists do with Revelation 12 and 13 is they make their interpretation of prophecy salvific. Yeah, they do. That's why we refer to it as an eschatological cult. Good point. That's the core of Adventism. And what is the actual core of salvation? It's faith in Christ alone and His finished work on the cross. It's 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 5. Exactly. It's not eschatology. Mm -mm. And that has been such a shift for me, figuring out that what a church believes about eschatology is not a deal breaker. What's Mm -mm. the deal breaker is do they hold to Christ alone, to an inerrant scripture, to the biblical trinity, Eschatology falls into place as we learn to take the Bible seriously. After walking through the end of chapter 12, last week, we talked about the first part of Revelation 13, where we met the beast from the sea, who is the Antichrist, the political power that will function as the Antichrist. And today, We're going to look at the last half of Revelation 13, where we meet the beast from the land with the two little lamb-like horns. And this also is a very definite Ellen proof text, and we will talk about that as we go through it. So, Nikki, why don't we read this last part of the chapter? And we're going to start with verse 9, and we'll read clear through to verse 18. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. Here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he was speaking as a dragon. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence, and he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast, whose fatal wound was healed. And he does great signs so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which were given to him to do in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. And it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And he causes all, the small and the great, and the rich and the poor, and the free men and the slaves, that they may be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead.' 
and that no one will be able to buy or to sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of man, and his number is 666. (laughs) That's the number that strikes fear and terror, right? Uh (laughs) (laughs) These verses that you just read come right after, as we've already mentioned, the introduction to the beast out of the sea the many-headed, many-crowned beast that the dragon seems to summon as he stands on the seashore. And it's interesting because between the dragon standing on the seashore, the emergence of that first beast, and now the second beast, we are seeing here and being introduced to the end-time evil trinity. It's like the false trinity that is going to be foisted upon the world to deceive them into worshiping Satan instead of worshiping Jesus. I love the fact that Gary calls it a demonic triad. I love that too. When Christ returns, what we're seeing here is that there will be a Gentile power, not God followers, but a Gentile power on the earth. And the beast that comes out of the sea is going to have a blasphemous mouth, authority to make war on the saints and to conquer them. This authority will be over the nations, the whole earth. And this authority will be given him ostensibly by the dragon, but actually by God. And it will have a time limit, 42 months. It's interesting because the grammar of all of this in the Greek is what we would normally call in studying the language, the divine passive. It describes the actions of God, even though it looks like the dragon is giving this beast his authority, which actually he is, it is under the ultimate sovereign authority of God. So these things that are happening are not part of a great controversy where Satan is struggling to get the upper hand over Jesus, who's struggling to expose and defeat Satan. No, God is sovereign. Our triune God is over all, and none of this surprises him. This is all by his will that this is happening. So, Nikki, beginning with 9 and 10, what do we see there that's important? Well, I think it's interesting that we have this little phrase here in verse 9, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. Earlier in the first three chapters of Revelation, that line read, if anyone has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Right. After chapter 3, that phrase doesn't say to the churches again. We don't hear about the church again until later when Christ comes back with them. This is one of the reasons I believe that there's biblical evidence that the church isn't present for this period in Earth's history. Yeah, especially these last seven years these three and a half years of terrible tribulation and the emergence of the Antichrist. Yeah. And verse 10 is confusing. And I appreciated the fact that Pastor Gary is always willing to say that he's not entirely sure what things mean when he's not sure what they mean. But he did make the point that this is said to believers, Mm -hmm. to people who believe in the Lord. And he said, the point is to speak to their perseverance Yeah. It's trusting God with what comes next. So the dragon will be enraged and go off to make war with believers, with those who keep the commandments or the teachings of God and have the true faith of Jesus. And it was interesting to me that I 
heard him say, people are being captured and killed, and this is not a call to resist. Mm -hmm. This particular one is not a call to resist, but to endure. Mm -hmm. God will take care of them. Well, there goes the theory that this is America. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So now let's go on and talk about this lamb-like beast, which Ellen White said was America. So in those first verses that describe it, 11 and 12, what do we learn about it? Well, its physical appearance doesn't seem to match how it speaks. Isn't that interesting? It's another beast. And Pastor Gary said that the Greek there is saying another of the same kind. So it's another beast. The only animal description we have is of a lamb, which makes me think religious, gentle. For sure. Doesn't that make you think a bit of that first horseman of the four horsemen of the apocalypse? That's didn't true. have a weapon in his hand. Yeah. I'm not saying they're the same. It just reminds me of that. So a gentle appearance, but he was speaking as a dragon. That is really significant. So his words don't match his appearance. Mm-mm. And I think you're right that we can assume this has some sort of a religious or spiritual overtone because this beast begins to function as a false prophet for the first beast. Well, and in later chapters, we have reason to believe that this is going to look like a religious figure because in chapter 16, verse 13, in chapter 19, verse 20, and in chapter 20, verse 10, this beast is referred to as the false prophet. True. So this beast is a partner with the first beast, and he's a false prophet for the Antichrist beast out of the sea that is going to demand worship. This beast will cause that to happen. Mm-hmm. It is interesting that in Revelation 20.10, like you were mentioning all of these other passages where he's called a false prophet, we are going to see in Revelation 20.10 that when God finally pronounces his final judgment, it says, the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And there goes the evil triad. Mm -hmm. So this beast is to the Antichrist, in a sense, what John the Baptist was to Jesus. Remember, John the Baptist came and turned the people's eyes towards Jesus. He prepared the way. He smoothed out the mountains and made the rough places plain and called the nation to repentance and said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then Jesus came and John the Baptist introduced him, as it were, to the nation. This beast is going to have a bit of that function in relationship to the first beast, and he's going to make everybody worship the first beast. He is the beast's prophet, and it's interesting to think of this as being kind of like the ultimate warning that Jesus gave when he says, false prophets will arise among you. This is going to be the ultimate false prophet. Mm -hmm. Kind of like the Antichrist is the ultimate Antichrist. Exactly, when the world is already full of antichrists. Mm -hmm. So, what is the main goal of false prophets? To deceive. Yeah. Pastor Gary had some really interesting comments about this that I hadn't thought of quite like this. He said, false prophets usually arrive within the prophesying community as opposed to the secular world. People expect and tend to believe people that say they have a message from God if the people themselves 
claim to function in the body of Christ. Now, clearly, a false prophet cannot be a true believer. So, false prophets usually arise within the prophesying community, and the main warning is that these will in some way look like Christians, but they can't be because they will be speaking falsehoods about Jesus. And this particular beast We don't know exactly the milieu from which he will arise. We know he will be from the land, but he will speak falsehoods and make the world honor the first beast. Now, what I think is really interesting is that Adventism claims that Ellen White is the John the Baptist of Jesus's second coming. Isn't that fascinating? It really is. It's chilling. I remember years ago, as we were just coming out of Adventism, Somebody sent me a cassette tape, and I don't have it anymore. I don't even know the name of it. But it was a sermon preached by Dwight Nelson, who was then the pastor at Pioneer Memorial at Andrews University. And his entire sermon was explaining how Ellen White is serving the function of John the Baptist before the second coming, just as John the Baptist was the forerunner of Jesus at his first coming. Now, Nikki. When I'm reading this and seeing that this beast is the false prophet, now I'm not saying Ellen White isn't this beast, clearly, but just like John said, there are already many antichrists in the world, there are already many false prophets, Mm -hmm. and Ellen White is no more a forerunner of our Lord Jesus (laughs) than I am, you know? (laughs) She is not a prophet like John the Baptist. She's not filling that function. She taught a false Jesus, a false Jesus who could have sinned, a false Jesus who did not complete his atonement at the cross, a false Jesus who is up in heaven now trying to figure out who's saved and who's not and applying his blood to confess sins. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. Ellen White cannot be a John the Baptist type figure, but she does fit this picture of a false prophet, in my opinion. Well, and it's interesting too, because in the Old Testament, Moses told them that another prophet like me is going to come. And and he was foreshadowing the fact that Christ is going to come as prophet, priest, and king, right? Right. So they expected a prophet to come. And John the Baptist was a prophet who came in the spirit of Elijah. They were expecting that as well. But when Jesus ascended, he didn't say, I'm going to send a prophet to you before I come back. There's no expectation for a Latter-day prophet like Ellen White claims to be. No, there is not. There's nothing in scripture to suggest that. And what I thought was interesting, Nikki, was that as I was reading through this yesterday, preparing for this podcast, I kept thinking, the closest thing I can see to prophets before the second coming are those two witnesses we read about in Revelation 13, who will come in the spirit and power of Moses and Elijah and preach in Jerusalem, specifically says in Jerusalem, the whole world will hear them. Mm-hmm. But there's no prophet to look for Mm-mm. besides those two witnesses. Ellen White also said that this particular beast is the United States of America. How'd she get there? It's political, I'm certain. Now, Ellen White wrote all of this stuff um, like in 1888 and 1897 and in the 19th century when America was still very young and it had a different political climate then and she was copying ideas from other people because I don't believe she ever had an original idea on her own apart from her, you know, spirit that came and visited her, her handsome young man, and the books she read in her library. But 
She said this. This is in The Great Controversy 1988 version on page 440. But the beast with the lamb-like horns was seen coming up out of the earth. Instead of overthrowing other powers to establish itself, the nation thus represented must arise in territory previously unoccupied and grow up gradually and peacefully. It could not then arise among the crowded and struggling nationalities of the old world, that turbulent sea of peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. It must be sought in the Western continent. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? She could be so certain and so specific. And we don't see any evidence at all. And isn't it interesting that <laughs> with the teachers that, that Christians listen to, you'll often hear, these are different interpretations. This is what I think. This is what I'm wondering about. But not so with Ellen. Ellen is a prophetess from God who has shown things and told things, and she's treated that way. That's why she's one of their fundamental beliefs. She's a continuing and authoritative source of truth. And her words will live on until the end. These are things that they have said about her and that she has said about herself. That's right. She also said this in the same version of Great Controversy, page 441. And he had two horns like a lamb. The lamb-like horns indicate youth, innocence, and gentleness, fitly representing the character of the United States when presented to the prophet as coming up in 1798. Today... I don't think any Adventist has just an easy understanding of this explanation of this beast. Now, I think it's still part of their doctrines. But today, the United States is very, very different politically than it was when Ellen White wrote on the coming out of the tale of the Civil War. She lived through the Civil War. She's writing these things just after the Civil War. The climate was completely different. Today, we can't see her descriptions even of no. the United States as fitting this. No. Young, innocent, gentle? Uh-uh. More like the fourth beast. <laughs> if <laughs> yes. we're going to make it a beast. If we're going to make it a beast. <laughs> so, I just have to say, we have to know that Ellen White said this. And by the way... Ted Wilson, in his fall council, made much of and seems to be speaking a lot of the fact that Adventism uses the, quotes, grammatical historical hermeneutic no. to interpret the Bible. Yes. He's been saying that publicly in the last few months. And I want to say that's the method we use when we read and interpret the Bible. Don't you kind of feel like saying, hi, Ted? Uh-huh. I do. <laughs> hi, Ted. But I want to say, he does not use the no, historical grammatical no. method because whatever it is he's interpreting with that method, he's interpreting it according to the definitions Ellen White imposes before he reads the Bible. But put prophecy aside, they don't use that when reading scripture about the gospel. No. Or about Israel. Or about the law. No. They don't use that method. So I just want to say, whatever Ted Wilson is saying, Know that he is saying it through the fog and veil of Ellen White's interpretations. Did they talk about it like that when you were still an Adventist? Because I've never heard about the historical grammatical literary hermeneutic until <laughs> I, I became I a believer. I didn't hear that phrase used that I can recall when I was an Adventist. Now, I started hearing about it... Um, I heard something similar to that as I was beginning to study my way out, but it was all very confusing and it was always included in with Ellen White's meanings. So I just want to say, I'm not certain 
when they started talking about this, but it seems like he's talking more about it now than he used to. But I want you to know he is not using the grammatical historical method as theologians define it because he has a false prophet in his mix, which he won't admit when he talks about it. But yet he does encourage his members to read the spirit of prophecy. It's right in the name, historical, grammatical, literary, hermeneutic. It's rooted in history. You know your audience. You have to know who's writing. You have to know when they're writing and what's going on. Grammar matters. So when it says you have eternal life, it's present tense. It's not after the investigative judgment. It takes into consideration the literary genre that you're reading in. None of that stuff factors in. All of it is filtered through the great controversy worldview and Adventism. So for him to say these things makes me think this is just more of their questions on doctrine tricks. It's them trying to sound Christian, both to Christians and to Adventists who are starting to ask questions. There are rumblings inside Adventism because there's so much content out there now to prove that there are issues. That's right. Just know that Ellen White said that this passage of Revelation 13 is describing the United States and that that still colors Adventist eschatology. It still colors their belief that there will be a Sunday law that begins at the international level and then comes to the national level. And this little lamb-like beast, which is the United States, will make a law that will say everybody has to worship on Sunday instead of Sabbath, and that will launch the persecution, the hunting, and the killing, like those pictures from Camp Ausable are preparing kids to be prepared for. That is all in whatever Ted Wilson is saying, and that is in their eschatology, and it is not in the Bible. I just wish that rather than trying to pivot, they would repent. I know. And to repent would mean having to leave, not to reform Mm -mm. Adventism. You can't reform something that began in error. Reform simply means to go back to the beginning, to the correct beginning. There is no correct beginning in Adventism. The only correct thing to do with Adventism would be to dismantle it. And short of that, when you become convinced of its falseness, to leave it for the Lord Jesus. Jesus will take care of the deception. He's promised to judge Satan. He's promised to judge the false prophet and the Antichrist. And we can leave that to him. And we are supposed to leave the error and follow Jesus and allow him to be our life. That is the perseverance of the saints. That's right. Going on in chapter 13 to verse 12, What is going to be the relationship between this lamb-like beast and the first beast? What do we learn in verse 12? Well, we learn that he exercises the authority that the first beast has. And it says in his presence. And Pastor Gary suggested that it just means that it's from him. Yeah. That it's derived from him. And he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast. And I just want to remind us that we read earlier in this chapter, that the people who worship the beast are the ones whose names were not written in the Lamb's book of life, who was slain before the foundation of the earth, and their names were written before the foundation of the earth. So when we read that it's those who dwell in the earth who worship the first beast, 
I can't help but wonder if that dwell in the earth is an indication that these are the unbelievers on earth. I would agree. So we see that this second beast is going to work closely with the first beast, exercise his authority, and make the world worship the first beast. All those who are not trusting in the Lord, all those whose names are not written in the Lamb's Book of Life, will worship the beast. There will be no middle ground. And frankly, you know what? There is no middle ground now, but it will be very much more clear then. So in verses 13 to 15, what do we learn about the way this beast exercises his authority to get people to believe? Well, he does great signs. And and it makes me think of Jesus saying, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks after signs. This beast is going to do great signs. He even makes fire come down out of heaven, which reminds me of Elijah with the false prophets. And he's going to deceive everyone who dwells on the earth. Again, I think that's a phrase indicating unbelievers because of these signs. And he's going to tell them to make an image to the beast. Doesn't that remind you of Nebuchadnezzar's image to himself? Yeah. Again, specifically says that it's to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life, which indicates that wound had killed him. Yeah. So this image that this beast is going to be commissioned to make is not just like the one that Nebuchadnezzar made. It's like that on steroids. Well, yeah, because in verse 15, it says that it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image would speak and he would cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. True believers really will have a death sentence against them. But these are not the people who are honoring the Sabbath. This has nothing to do with Sabbath. This has everything to do with Jesus. Do you trust the Lord Jesus or not? And we're going to learn that there's great consequences besides the death threat if people don't worship the beast. It was interesting. I had not considered this before, but Gary pointed out the fact that this false prophet causes the beast to speak about a future event that would occur because he speaks and causes people to be killed. It's as if he is prophesying what will happen and then it comes to pass. And so this brought up the issue of the mark of a false prophet. How do you test a prophet? So the tests of the prophets come from the book of Deuteronomy. In chapter 18, 20 through 22, we learn that a true prophet is going to predict and the prediction will come true. And in Deuteronomy 13, 1 to 5, we're going to learn that a true prophet is orthodox, that he will not lead people away from Yahweh. So while it may appear that this false prophet is predicting the death of these people and then it comes to pass, He is not leading people to Yahweh, so he fails the test. And what's interesting about that to me, Nikki, is that a false prophet is able sometimes to accurately predict what will come. You know, people often say, show me one prophecy of Ellen White that didn't come true. Well, okay, I can do that. I can even show you better than that. I can show you where she spoke falsehood about the Lord Jesus. That condemns her right there, in my opinion. But... A false prophet might even have a prediction that comes true, but the message has to be orthodox. Yes, and one of the things that was so interesting about that passage in Deuteronomy talking about the prophet needing to be orthodox is why this prophet is even there. Right. So, 
I just want to read the first three verses. It says, If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes true concerning which he spoke to you, saying, Let us walk after other gods whom you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For Yahweh your God is testing you to find out if you love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So what I understand, and I may be wrong, but what I'm seeing here is that there can be false prophets who do predict things that do come to pass. But if they're trying to pull you off to serve a different God, then that false prophet came from God to test your loyalty. It's all under God's will. There is no false prophet who falsely prophesies apart from God's permitting that and allowing it for purposes we might not even know, which, of course, is very pertinent to us former Adventists. Why did he allow Ellen White to have so much power? Why did he allow Adventism to flourish all these years and to grow and to deceive millions and millions of people? Why? And you know, I don't know the answer to that. But I do know that God wastes nothing and redeems everything we submit to Him. And Nikki, can't you say for sure that if it hadn't been for having to figure out how Ellen's worldview deceived us, we wouldn't have nearly the understanding of God, His will, and His word that we have now? Yeah. God uses even evil for His purposes. And we talked about that last week as well. God is sovereign. Evil is not out there on an equal playing field trying to outwit God. Evil can go only as far as God allows it to go and only to the extent he allows it. He is in charge. So even this false prophet, even our own past Ellen White, that is all within God's will and he will redeem it and he will punish the wicked. And we can know that this is not a trick. This is not God saying, figure it out. Don't worship the wrong prophet. He gives us very clear understanding of how to know. Mm-hmm. It may cost us dearly, but he tells us what's true and he makes it clear. So then in verse 16, it says, and he causes all the small and the great, the rich and the poor, the free men and the slaves, that they be given a mark on their right hand and on their forehead. Okay. So I'm not sure how I missed this as a (laughs) proof text. Obviously, this is a proof text for Adventism right? that no one would be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark. And, you know, I think it's not just inside Adventism that people are always looking for the mark of the beast. No, it's not. I think there's a, a really large majority of Christians, or at least a vocal portion of Christians, who believe they can be tricked into getting the mark of the beast. But Scripture is very clear on that. No matter where you land in the millennium or the rapture or who Israel is, I think it's hard to argue with the fact that we're not going to be tricked into getting the mark of the beast. The language demands that you understand these are people who are intentionally paying homage to the beast. Yes. So we can put that away. I agree. There were two one-sentence quotes that I wanted to share. One was from J. Vernon McGee and one was from Gary Enrig about this passage. J. Vernon McGee said, here in this section, verses 16 and 17, evil is now wedding, religion, and business. For all will have to have the mark of the beast to do business. 
And Gary Inrig said this, he will take this power and the impression of the beast and turn it into terrorist purposes. People who do not take the mark will be penalized with the things that are required for living. That's what the effect of this mark of the beast will be. But like you said, Nikki, we can't get it accidentally. Mm-mm. Only those who have not committed themselves to the Lord Jesus, those who are not already worshiping Him, who are not sealed with the Spirit and kept by Him, those are the people who will get this. Mm -hmm. But those who are honoring the Lord won't accidentally take the mark. And I just think we have to be really clear about that. You know, in Adventism, I thought that <laughs> I thought that salvation was a bit of an IQ test. You yeah. know, you had to be smart enough to see all the tricks so that you're not tricked into being lost. And Christ has made it so easy for us to be His forever. If we would just submit and trust Him, we don't have to worry about it. That's right. And Ellen made it hard and tricky. And she clearly identified her view of this mark. And she said, the mark of the beast is going to church on Sunday. How convenient is that for her, to her worldview with the great controversy? Now, this is a quote from the Review and Herald from 1897, where Ellen writes this, if the light of truth has been presented to you, revealing the Sabbath of the fourth commandment and showing that there is no foundation in the word of God for Sunday observance, and yet you still cling to the false Sabbath, refusing to keep holy the Sabbath, which God calls my holy day, you receive the mark of the beast. When does this take place? When you obey the decree. There again is that reference to the United States having a Sunday law. When you obey the decree that commands you to cease from labor on Sunday and worship God, while you know that there is not a word in the Bible showing Sunday to be other than a common working day, you consent to receive the mark of the beast and refuse the seal of God. Now, wait a minute. You can't not work on Sunday to worship God? (laughs) Right. Say more. What about Monday? Can can you take a day off on Monday and worship God? Good question. In her mind, there's one day to worship God, and that is Saturday. This is why that gentleman's wife is afraid. Because according to Ellen, Christianity is going to be deceived into taking the mark of the beast. That is her eschatological belief that the body of Christ will be deceived into apostasy. You're right. And we are terrified, and we're looking for the clues to make sure that we're not deceived. You know what, Nikki? You've hit it on the head. That's why that man's wife is afraid. Now, there's one more, in my opinion, damning quote from The Great Controversy, page 605, where Ellen says, The Sabbath will be the great test of loyalty. For it is the point of truth especially controverted. When the final test shall be brought to bear upon men, then the line of distinction will be drawn between those who serve God and those who serve Him not. While the observance of the false Sabbath, in compliance with the law of the state, contrary to the fourth commandment, will be an avowal of allegiance to a power that is in opposition to God, the keeping of the true Sabbath in obedience to God's law is an evidence of loyalty to the Creator. 
while one class, by accepting the sign of submission to earthly powers, receive the mark of the beast, the other, choosing the token of allegiance to divine authority, receive the seal of God. That's incredible. It is. Revelation is incredibly clear. Now, there is a lot here to be confused by. I understand that. But it is very clear that ultimately it comes down to who are you worshiping? God or the Antichrist? It has nothing to do with the day, the time. And I'm realizing more and more, Nikki, that in the Great Controversy worldview, Ellen White established a day to be the preeminent focus of Adventists, and it will deceive them. They will willingly take the mark of the beast because it does not include a day. They will feel like taking a mark that allows them to buy and sell will be essentially like getting a ration card in the Second World War. They will not recognize it as the mark of the beast because to them, the day is the mark, and that mark eclipses their perception of their true object of worship, those who take the day as the sign of the mark are going to be worshiping a false Jesus. Because the real Jesus never asks us to worship him on a day. That's so confusing to me because these people will be intentionally worshiping and paying homage to the image. Unless the Lord impresses them with the reality that they're worshiping an idol instead of the real Jesus, which... I believe the Lord Jesus can do it any time in a person's life. So I'm not predetermining who is going to be lost here. But I am just saying that as long as people believe that the day is what they have to look for, they will miss the fact that Jesus, the Lord Jesus, is the one that all of this is about. It's not going to be about a day or a system or a formula for worship. It will be about a person. You will either worship the Antichrist or you will worship the risen Lord Jesus. There's no other way about it. And even this Revelation 13 is clear in this description. John is clearly revealing to us what God told him about these two false beasts who are representing the dragon who is Satan. And only the Lord Jesus can rescue us from that. And a day will not help us. So this brings us to verse 18. What do we learn in verse 18 about the mark of the beast? Well, we know that the mark of the beast is the number of man mm-hmm. and that his number is 666. And I love, I loved what Pastor Gary said. Um, he said he has no idea. <laughs> I really appreciated that because we really don't know what it means. And he did talk about three basic understandings of how to approach this. There's one called gematria, where the letters are given numerical values, and people have played with this and come up with all different kinds of people throughout history that would line up with that number. I remember hearing that even in Adventism, mm-hmm. that that they were able to do that, even with like current political leaders at that right. time, you know. I've even heard that Ellen White comes up with success. Does she really? <laughs> By some people's calculations. It only works if you turn it into Hebrew, not Greek, change the spelling by one letter, etc. You just got to get creative with that one. (laughs) Uh, And then the other understanding is that it it uses the number six because number six is seen as the number of man in contrast to God's number seven, which is 
viewed as the number of completeness. Man was created on the sixth day, that this represents humanity falling short of God, and then repeating it three times would emphasize the depravity of this person. And he said the, the third common one is just that it's unknowable until Antichrist comes. And when he comes, it will be noble at that time. And that does line up with Daniel when he said knowledge will increase. You know, That's people right. will be running to and fro and and yeah, things will start making sense. <laughs> and after all, isn't that why we have prophecy? We have prophecy so we're not left in the complete dark as history continues to unfold. And when things happen, we can look at the Bible and go, oh, we're kind of in this war rumor of war period. Oh, I can see that we've had these four empires, and I can see that we're nearing those toes of clay. Prophecy is for our assurance and our understanding, so we're not left in the dark, and we will not be deceived when things start to happen. So we aren't supposed to know all the details in Mm -hmm. advance. And people who say they can are lying. I really believe that just like Ellen White was lying. And even as we approach the book of Revelation, we hold tightly the things that are clear, like God's sovereignty and his provision and the care for his people, even in the middle of trial and the promise that we will endure hard things. We hold that tightly, but the stuff that we're not as clear on, we hold loosely and it doesn't affect fellowship. No. And it certainly doesn't affect our salvation because that is in Christ alone. I loved what J. Vernon McGee said at the end of his commentary on this section. He said, the only positive and important item for us today is that the first beast is a man. This teaches me, he said, not to trust man. And then he quoted Jeremiah 17, 5 to 7, and I'm going to quote it here in the LSB version. Thus says Yahweh, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength, and whose heart turns away from Yahweh, and he will be like a juniper in the desert, and will not see when prosperity comes, but will dwell in stony waste places in the wilderness, a land of salt which is not inhabited. Blessed is the man who trusts in Yahweh, and whose trust is Yahweh." And as we close this section, where we see so clearly that our past was shaped by a false prophet who gave us a false image of the future and who gave us a false identity of Jesus, we can trust Yahweh, our triune God, who knows the future, who has planned for us to be here now at this time for His glory, and He has revealed to us His grace in His Son, whom He sent to bear our sin. And if you have not trusted His Son, who took your sin in His body on the cross and endured God's wrath against sin, who died, who was buried, and who rose on the third day, breaking the curse of the law, this is the time to trust Him. As the world seems to rock and tilt with all kinds of unknown, unexpected things around us, know that our sovereign God is not surprised that your presence here at this time is for His purposes and His glory, and He will keep you safe. He will hold you fast if you have trusted the Son. We do not have to fear these things. We do not have to fear the things we learned in Adventism, because the Lord Jesus is sovereign, and when we know Him— We are alive in Him, 
and nothing can pluck us out of his hand. We hope you'll join us as we continue to walk through the book of Revelation and begin with chapter 14. And we'll see you then. Thank you for listening to Former Adventist Podcast. You may email us at formeradventist at gmail.com. Former Adventist Podcast is a ministry of Life Assurance Ministries. For more information, weekly articles, videos, and a donation link, go to our website at proclamationmagazine.com. Thank you.